All right, guys, welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, May 2013. sitting here right now with my good friend Greg Polites. Greg is one of the education experts in our division. Uh, he is the course master for the practice of medicine, has won practice of medicine uh, course master of the year in the medical school two years in a row. He's won the Golden Stethoscope Award. He's won the Golden Apple Award. He is the Taylor Swift of emergency medicine education. Greg, tell us about the topic you chose this month and why you chose it. Actually, I didn't win the Golden Apple. I'm still holding out for that one. But no, anyway. That, that's coming. Yes. Um, I chose this topic for Journal Club because, one, I think it's such a common problem that we're confronted with every day, and two, because I think it's an important topic that we need to educate our medical students and residents about. The topic I wanted to discuss was not just should we treat asymptomatic hypertension in the ED, but what, if any, testing should we do? We've all known for years that there's no evidence that supports the routine treatment of asymptomatic hypertension in the emergency department. And I think that's well known, and the practice pattern is pretty well established, at least among those who are trained in emergency medicine. But I do think that there's still some variability regarding how much testing we should do in the asymptomatic hypertensive patient, and I admittedly even see variability in my own practice. Uh, and then finally, I had another question that I wanted to get from our group during Journal Club that really wasn't addressed in these articles, but I still think is important, uh, and that is what blood pressure reading in an asymptomatic patient would prompt you to perform a workup and or treat the patient. I think we all have some number where we start to get nervous, uh, regardless of whether the patient is symptom-free or not. Uh, and I thought we could discuss this a little bit after we re review the papers. All right, so great topic. Obviously something that comes up quite frequently, a lot of anxiety surrounding this, especially uh, with the patients themselves when they come in and their blood pressure's up and they wanna know why is it so high and what do I need to do? So we picked four articles that best address this issue. Um, tell us about the first article. Okay, so this first paper is titled Routine Testing in Patients with Asymptomatic Elevated Blood Pressure in the ED. It was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2010 out of Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn by Daniel Nishijima. So this paper is a cross-sectional study performed at two urban teaching hospitals, Kings County Hospital with an ED census of 135,000 patients and State University of New York at Downstate with an ED census of 65,000 patients per year. Both institutions had a large, uh, largely African-American population, I think uh, 92 and 93 percent respectively. Adult patients 18 years or older with a triage diastolic blood pressure of 100 millimeters uh, or higher without symptoms suggestive of acute organ damage were enrolled. All patients had a BMP sent and the primary outcome measured was abnormalities on the BMP that led to hospital admission. The secondary outcome measured was the prevalence of diminished renal function, which they defined as a GFR of less than 60. These subjects were enrolled between August of 2006 and February of 2008. They excluded pregnant patients uh, or those with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis or those with a chief complaint that would make one more concerned about the patient being at high risk for acute end-organ damage or those who presented with a need for a diagnostic workup, so things like altered mental status, shortness of breath, chest pain. And any patients that the attending felt based on the patient's other symptoms that potential end organ damage could be present were also excluded. Patients with known hypertension were not excluded from the study. So in this study, the patient characteristics were as follows. 
about uh, 56 percent of the patients were uh, female, uh, 44 percent male. Uh, the age varied between the early uh, 40s to mid-70s. So what did they find? 167 patients with asymptomatic elevated blood pressure were included in the final analysis. 60% had a history of hypertension. 53% were prescribed hypertensive medication. Of these, only 22% were compliant with their prescribed antihypertensive medications when seen in the ED. Oral antihypertensive medications were administered to 41% of the patients and none of them received any IV medications. A total of 150 of the patients, about 90%, had one or more abnormal results on their BMP. Of the 167 patients, 7.2% had abnormal results on their BMP that led to hospital admission. 10 patients, or about 6%, were admitted for renal dysfunction. I think one had an elevated potassium level, but it wasn't markedly elevated and did not re require medical treatment. Uh, and then one patient was noted to have renal failure that required dialysis and was hospitalized for uremia. Two of the patients were admitted for elevated glucose levels, and one of these two had a new diagnosis of diabetes. Three patients were admitted for uncontrolled elevated blood pressure. Their mean blood pressure was in the range of 217 over 130, and one was admitted for anemia. All the patients admitted for elevated glucose, uncontrolled elevated blood pressure, and anemia had normal serum creatinine levels and GFRs. About 16.2% of the patients met the secondary outcome measure of diminished renal function, and uh, of these, 12% had a GFR of less than 30. So one of the other papers that we're going to discuss in a little bit by Karis is a good one to compare this study with, and we'll talk a little bit about the differences uh, in a moment. So, you know, what the JNC recommends is a diagnostic, JNC-7, uh, they recommend a diagnostic workup in patients with elevated blood pressure before starting medications, but this is in the primary care setting. Uh, there's really no specific guidelines for us in emergency medicine. Some limitations to this study was one in which the data was collected, uh, that is by an ED chart review. This is really prone to confounders such as compliance with follow-up or any other societal issues that that we can't really appreciate from, from the information they've given us. Also, the enrollment numbers were quite low for the two institutions of this size and for the length of the study. And I think this could suggest a selection bias that could have been introduced into the study, and they, they mentioned this in their paper uh, because this was a non-consecutive convenient sample. Uh, some patients, for example, who are deemed very low risk may have simply been discharged uh, with no lab work sent and that really could have skewed the results in that um, higher risk patients were actually brought into the study. So really what's the bottom line? I think in looking at this, you know, based on the evidence, it might make sense that a serum creatinine can help you if you have a largely African-American patient population. If you look at a more heterogeneous population, uh, I'm not quite sure you could argue for the routine testing yeah, it speaks to an issue of external validity. Uh, this was a large urban emergency department, uh, likely with poor primary care follow-up, and that's going to lead to inflated admission rates. If you're seeing patients in the community who have primary care doctors who come in, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not safe to send them out if they can follow up in the next one or two days. Right. Also, they didn't really look at any real patient important outcomes. All they looked at was, did we have a result that changed management? They didn't actually look at whether or not that change in management affected any important outcomes like stroke, MI, death. They just looked at whether or not the patient got admitted. So if we can show that admitting these patients actually changes outcomes, then that might be a more important thing to look at. 
I agree, and, and, and I think we would both agree that the threshold that we have regarding what we do, whether it's testing or treatment, is really influenced by what's going to happen to that patient afterwards. A large proportion of our patients uh, we know are not very compliant with follow-up because we end up seeing them uh, back in the department in the next week or two sometimes with their papers that gave them instructions to follow up and, and they never did, they came back to us, which is better than, than not, but I think it does influence uh, what we need to do. Right. They come back and they list you as their primary care doctor. That's exactly. good. So the next article we looked at was the article by David Karras, and this was Utility of Routine Testing for Patients with Asymptomatic Severe Blood Pressure Elevation in the Emergency Department. Uh, it was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2008. This also was a prospective observational cross-sectional study. Uh, this was conducted at three inner-city teaching hospital emergency departments, uh, two of which were associated with emergency medicine residency training programs. Uh, they conducted the study for four weeks in the summer of 2004, and then because they didn't get enough patients enrolled during that time, they actually enrolled for an additional four weeks in the summer of 2005. This was also a convenient sample of patients enrolled by research associates between 8 a.m. and midnight. Eligibility required that you be over 18 years of age and have either a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 180 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 110 millimeters of mercury at any time during the ED visit. They excluded patients with any acute illness or injury that required immediate intervention uh, aside from intervention for the asymptomatic hypertension, uh, any severe trauma, or any patient with any signs of end organ damage. Patients were actually given a questionnaire asking about symptoms in the last 24 hours. Uh, and anyone with any, any symptoms of end organ damage, including chest pain, shortness of breath, confusion, altered mental status, unilateral weakness or numbness, severe headache, or epistaxis, uh, were excluded from any further analysis. Patients who were included underwent diagnostic testing that included a BMP, a CBC, uh, an EKG, a urinalysis, and a chest x-ray. The protocol didn't mandate any additional testing, uh, which was left to the discretion of the treating physicians. After the tests were ordered, but before the results came back, the treating physician, either the attending or the senior resident, uh, was interviewed by the research associates, and they were asked to choose a reason for ordering the test. They had three options, either because the medical history suggested the test would be abnormal, because the history of present illness or physical exam suggested the test would be abnormal, or that the test was obtained simply because of the elevated blood pressure. They then did a second interview with the treating physician once the results were available, and with regards to any abnormal results, they asked whether or not the results changed management. And the options for this were, yes, the patient was admitted because of the results, yes, further testing or consultation was ordered because of the results, yes, medications were started or changed specifically because of the results, or no, test results did not alter management. The primary outcome was the frequency of clinically meaningful unanticipated test abnormalities. In other words, was there an unanticipated test result that either led to hospitalization, additional testing or consultation, or modification of the medication regimen. They had two investigators, otherwise blinded to the data, assess the test abnormalities and grade them as being likely, possible, or unlikely manifestations of hypertensive end organ damage. During the total two-week enrollment period, 409 patients with severely elevated blood pressure presented to the three EDs, and of these, 109 were included in the final analysis. Mean age was 56 years, about 54% were female, and about 83% were African American. What they found was unanticipated test abnormalities that resulted in a change in management occurred in seven patients. That's 6% of the patients 
with a 95% confidence interval of 2% to 11%. Of these seven patients, two had abnormalities that were considered unlikely to be related to the elevated blood pressure, whereas five had abnormalities that were considered possibly related to the elevated blood pressure. These included renal insufficiency, ischemic EKG changes, hypokalemia, and non-hemolytic anemia. So again, I think we have the same limitations that we saw in the other study. Uh, one is external validity. These were urban inner city hospitals with large African-American populations, likely less access to follow-up care, likely leading to an overinflated rate of admission. Um, had you seen these same results in patients in the community who had easy access to follow-up, they may not have been admitted, they may have been discharged home. Again, we didn't look at any important outcomes. We didn't look at whether or not these admissions actually altered long-term outcomes such as stroke, MI, death. Um, so that would be more important to look at in the future. I agree. All right, so we looked now at two studies that looked at testing in the ED for asymptomatic hypertension. Uh, what about treatment of asymptomatic hypertension? Greg, you have a study that looks at that, right? Yes, uh, this one is titled Rapid Reduction of Severe Asymptomatic Hypertension. It's a prospective controlled trial performed by Kathleen Zeller out of UT Southwestern in Dallas. I should note that during our journal club last week, one of our second-year residents pointed out that she was only five years old when this paper was published in 1989, <laughs> uh, after which we subsequently told her that she's now failed residency. Um, so uh, this study uh, was to determine when you do decide to treat severe asymptomatic high blood pressure, whether antihypertensive loading prior to initiation of, of maintenance therapy provides an improved or hastened blood pressure control. I should point out that in reviewing this paper, we are not, and I repeat, not advocating the treatment of chronically elevated asymptomatic hypertension. We are simply discussing what was found in patients who received loading doses of an antihypertensive prior to therapy versus maintenance therapy alone. I think it's well established and we all agree that acute lowering of chronically elevated blood pressure provides little if any benefit and can actually be more harmful than helpful. I think we would all agree, however, that many of us have a number uh, with which we feel uncomfortable discharging a patient without either a workup or starting the gradual reduction of the blood pressure from the ED. So now that my disclaimer is done, uh, in this study of 74 asymptomatic subjects with diastolic pressures between 116 and 139 were identified from patients coming to a large metropolitan uh, emergency department, in this case UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Subjects who were enrolled had not received antihypertensive treatment for a minimum of three days prior to enrollment. Exclusion criteria included congestive heart failure, papilledema, encephalopathy, history of transient neurologic deficits, a serum creatinine uh, level greater than 2.2, active urinary sediment, angina, or prior MI, potential fertility, and an, any unstable coexisting medical problem. Patients were also excluded if they were receiving therapy with tricyclic antidepressants or sedative hypnotics or were in severe pain. Eligible patients were randomized from a computer-generated uh, sequence to one of three treatment protocols. All patients received clonidine, 0.2 milligrams, and chlorothalidone, 25 milligrams. So here's how each group was structured. Group 1 patients received the treatment just mentioned and then were given up to four hourly doses of 0.1 milligrams of clonidine until the diastolic blood pressure decreased by at least 20 millimeters of mercury or fell to at least 105. Group two patients received hourly placebo for the same indications, and in group three, patients received no further medication acutely and were immediately discharged from the ED. 
Each of the discharged patients received maintenance therapy with clonidine 0.2 milligrams and chlorothalidone 25 milligrams twice a day and were reevaluated at 24, 48, and 72 hours and then one week. Subjects who sustained more than a 40% reduction in systolic or diastolic blood pressure or had an absolute systolic blood pressure of less than 105 or a diastolic blood pressure less than 70 after a single 0.2 milligram loading dose of clonidine were begun on a regimen of clonidine 0.1 milligrams and chlorothalidone 12.5 milligrams twice daily. So they basically halved it. Uh, subjects demonstrating a systolic blood pressure of 100 millimeters mercury or less or a diastolic blood pressure of 60 or less on any of the follow-up visits had their medication doses reduced to this level. Patients failing to complete 24-hour follow-up evaluation were excluded from analysis. So what were the results? Well, when they compared groups 1 and 2, there was no difference in the number of doses administered prior to achieving acceptable blood pressure reduction. The time required to achieve acceptable blood pressure control did not differ between the groups. Moreover, group 2 patients experienced a progressive decline in the mean arterial pressure over three hours after receiving a single dose of clonidine. Five hours after the initiation of therapy, a small but significant greater decline in mean arterial pressure in patients receiving the hourly loading dose was observed, which uh, of course is not surprising. 24 hours after presentation, all three patient groups demonstrated significantly lower pressures. Patients receiving oral antihypertensive loading did not demonstrate lower systolic, diastolic, or arterial pressure levels at 24 hours. So what's the gist of this study? Uh, well, essentially, if we were going to treat blood pressure in the ED with an oral agent, it's important to know that the peak antihypertensive effect of an orally administered dose of clonidine is not observed for several hours. This finding also suggests that the blood pressure response in the early hours after initiation of therapy does not predict a need for further loading with antihypertensive medication, specifically clonidine. This study also demonstrated that the acute reduction in blood pressure seen with clonidine is maintained in the majority of patients after they are discharged from the emergency department, but that prolonged blood pressure control is independent of whether the patient is treated acutely with a loading dose of medication. Thus, sustained blood pressure control results solely from ma the maintenance therapy initiated. So really, in conclusion, treatment of severe hypertension should be preceded by a careful evaluation for the evidence of acute end-organ injury. Uh, in that setting, immediate reduction of blood pressure with a titratable parenteral antihypertensive would really seem to be indicated. In asymptomatic patients with evidence of chronic end-organ damage, though, treatment should focus on tailoring an effective, well-tolerated, maintenance antihypertensive program and patient education to enhance compliance. Oral antihypertensive loading in this setting really serves little purpose. Yeah, I think this study tells us what most of us already know, um, which is that loading somebody with antihypertensive in the emergency department doesn't do any, any good. Their blood pressure was elevated and has been elevated for a long time. You give them medications that within a day or two are out of their system. Right. It's really what they take at home after that that's going to make the difference. Exactly. I think, you know, and we'll all, we all have to admit, I think we're, we're treating a number and we're treating ourselves. Right. Making ourselves feel better and sleep better at night. That's right. There were a few problems with this study. Um, probably the biggest is that they had a significant loss to follow up. They lost 30 of the 74 patients they enrolled, so 40.5% 40 failed to complete follow up at one week. Um, I'm guessing that some of these patients at least were in that group one that potentially got 
0.7 milligrams of clonidine over a five-hour period. Probably went home, died, or stroked out, and didn't follow up after that. I didn't cover. Uh, I didn't cover that, but I think they did have a pretty fair number of patients who stopped taking their medication because of side effects. Right. Right. Again, they didn't look at any uh, patient important outcomes. These were surrogate outcomes looking only at the blood pressure. Um, again, what we care about is does early loading reduce the risk of stroke, MI, death uh, in the long term? I think we probably all feel that the answer to that is no, and there may not be a study that addresses that question in the future because we all think we know the answer. But uh, just showing that the blood pressure differences were the same at one week um, isn't as important to the patient as are you reducing my risk of having a bad outcome. Exactly. All right, so the last article we looked at was actually a clinical policy from the American College of Emergency Physicians. Uh, this was critical issues in the evaluation and management of adult patients with asymptomatic hypertension in the emergency department. It was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2006. Uh, Dr. Decker was the lead author on these policy. So the members of the American College of Emergency Physicians Clinical Policy Subcommittee on Asymptomatic Hypertension performed a chart review and critical appraisal of the peer-reviewed medical literature. They did a Medline search for articles published between January of 92, January of 2005. They reviewed the abstracts and articles, and those addressing the questions considered in this policy were chosen for grading. They also looked at references from bibliographies of the selected articles. Expert peer reviewers also supplied articles. Where literature was not available, consensus of emergency physicians was obtained. They also elicited expert commentary from individual emergency physicians, as well as individual members of the American College of Physicians, American Society of Hypertension, the American Society of Nephrology, and the Emergency Nurses Association. Based on that evidence, they made recommendations using different levels as follows. A level A recommendation, a generally accepted principle for patient management that reflects a high degree of clinical certainty. Level B recommendations, a recommendation for patient management that may identify a particular strategy or range of management strategies that reflect moderate clinical certainty. And level C recommendations are other strategies for patient management based on preliminary, inconclusive, or conflicting evidence, or in the absence of any published literature on panel consensus. So this clinical policy asked two questions. And the first question was, are ED blood pressure readings accurate and reliable for screening asymptomatic patients for hypertension? Based on this, they made a level B recommendation that if blood pressure measurements are persistently elevated, by that they meant a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 or a diastolic pressure greater than 90, that the patient should be referred for follow-up. They also made a level C recommendation that patients with a single elevated blood pressure may need further outpatient screening for hypertension. They based these recommendations on several observational and case studies, probably the most important of which was by Chernow et al., uh, in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 87, called the Use of the Emergency Department for Hypertensive Screening, a prospective study, in which they identified 239 patients with systolic blood pressures greater than 159 or diastolic blood pressures greater than 94. Of those patients referred for follow-up, 35% were found to be hypertensive at follow-up, 33% were found to be borderline hypertensive, and 32%, nearly a third, had normal blood pressure readings on follow-up. So a third of the patients they saw in the ED with significantly elevated blood pressures ended up having normal blood pressures when followed up as an outpatient. The second question they asked in this clinical policy was, do asymptomatic patients with elevated blood pressure benefit from rapid lowering of their blood pressure? Of course, one of the studies they referenced for this uh, was the study by Zeller that we already talked about. 
they made three level B recommendations. One is initiation of treatment for asymptomatic hypertension is not necessary when the patients have follow-up. Secondly, rapid lowering of blood pressure in asymptomatic patients is unnecessary and potentially harmful, as Dr. Pilates alluded to earlier. And three, when blood pressure treatment is initiated for asymptomatic hypertension, the goal should be to gradually lower the blood pressure and not expect to normalize it during the ED visit, again, as Dr. Pilates mentioned earlier. So these guidelines are, of course, limited. First of all, they're based on very limited available evidence. There just aren't a lot of great studies out there looking at this issue. There are no prospective randomized controlled trials evaluating the impact of these guidelines or the impact of any of the treatments that they considered. Patient values were also not solicited. These were based purely on physician preference and physician values. They didn't talk to patients at all about what's important to them. Having said that, I think the guidelines are still important and relevant. And if nothing else, they demonstrate the lack of available evidence and also caution us to not be too cavalier about lowering blood pressure too quickly. I agree. And, and you know, you have to really think about the patient population that you're treating. When I think of, of whether or not these papers change my practice pattern, I'm not sure that it necessarily does because so much of the workup that I will do on somebody who comes in with severely elevated blood pressure has to do with the fact that I really have a low confidence level that they're going to be able to get in to see someone anytime uh, in the near future. So I think that really is a big point that needs to be considered. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I, we all have a lower threshold to check some labs, maybe get an EKG, maybe even a chest x-ray on these asymptomatic patients if we're worried that they're not going to get followed up in the next one, two, three months. Right. I think we all will probably agree, or at least most of us, that rapidly lowering the blood pressure in someone who's got no symptoms is not a good idea. Um, right. It's not going to benefit the patient. It might potentially cause harm. Their cerebral perfusion is already auto-regulated based on those elevated blood pressures that they've had chronically. Uh, if you drop their pressure quickly, you're going to decrease their cerebral perfusion and potentially have them uh, have a stroke. Now, I've never seen that happen, um, but it certainly has been reported in the literature. So I guess the, uh, the final question is, if you're going to start your patient on an antihypertensive uh, for them to go home on, which one do you choose? How about you? I, I tend to uh, go with uh, a thiazide diuretic, uh, oftentimes is my first line. Yeah, I tend to try and choose something that's on those one of those $4 lists that are out there now. Um, I think uh, hydrochlorothiazide is a good option, uh, amlodipine, lisinopril are other good options. I think those are kind of three of the ones that are recommended by JNC for the initial management of hypertension. So to sum up, I think it sounds like we're in agreement that uh, it is reasonable to do some workup for asymptomatic hypertension in the ED uh, when you think follow-up is an issue. Uh, it's also reasonable to start somebody on an antihypertensive when you're pretty well assured that their blood pressure is, is truly elevated. It's probably not a good idea to rapidly lower their blood pressure in the emergency department. Again, when you do that, you're, you're treating a number, you're treating yourself, you're not really treating the patient. All right, guys, well, that's it uh, here from us uh, for this month's Journal Club. It was great to have you here for the Journal Club podcast. Go ahead and like us on Facebook at EMJ Club. Follow us on Twitter at EMJ Club and check out our new website at emjclub.com. Uh, we'd love to see you there.